as I can. We're doing this series for two reasons. Number one, if you're a Christian, I want you to realize that you're not stupid just because you have faith in God. You can be an intellectual, rational, logical, intelligent being and have faith in God. It's not like Christians equal stupid or to be stupid, you have to be a Christian. That's the first thing I want to say. I encourage you that you can use your brain, you can use the faculties of intellect and scrutiny and evidence and science, and guess what happens? Your, your faith doesn't disappear, dissolve, or hide in the background. Number two, if you're a skeptic, you're someone who, like me, was not raised in this thing, is highly suspicious of this thing. We talk about in the church world how people have spiritual gifts, you know, like the spiritual gift of encouragement, the spiritual gift of teaching. Listen to me. My spiritual gift is I have the spiritual gift of suspicion. That's my gift. I'm suspicious. I'm like, what's really going on here? What's, what's really happening? And because I've been leading a long time, when things are going well, everyone's like, oh, things are so great. I'm like... Things are going too great. You know what I'm saying? Like, something's going to happen. So, so that, that's how I came to faith. I was not someone who wanted a faith, embraced a faith, was even open to it. I was very antagonistic uh, towards God, the Bible, faith in general, Jesus, the whole thing. Uh, and so if you're like me, you're, you're in that camp, I want, I want to do two things. I want you to consider, please. I mean, as an intellectual, just consider as a possibility that maybe you're wrong. Surprise, surprise. Maybe. Maybe, you're, maybe I'm wrong. That's cool. I just want you to consider. That's how you have a conversation, right? You listen and you share. Number two, what I also want to say is this. If, you, you know, if you're open to the idea, the second thing I want to say, say to skeptics in, in particular is, do you know the foundation which your worldview is built? Because what I'm going to do today is I'm not going to look so much at the Bible. We'll, we'll look a little bit at that. But I'm actually going to quote the people in the world, scientists, biologists, you know, evolutionists, philosophers, I'm going to quote the people that basically form the foundation that you believe if you're a skeptic. If you're a secular, I'm, I'm going to use them and their printed, quoted research to show you how you to be careful because maybe all of what you believe isn't as believable as you thought it to be believable. That's all I'm asking. So for Open Minds, for the next couple of weeks, we hope to jump into this series. And again, uh, if you're from church or from a church background, our whole approach is going to be different. I'm sitting on a stool, everybody. I'm getting old, you know, and this, you know, mid-30s is hard. So the team kind of said, Jamie, you're looking a bit tired. We need to sit you down. Um, no, I, I, we're, we're, we're intentionally adopting this posture because I want it to be more of a, of a, of a conversation, okay? And it's not going to be your typical bio message. Why? Because what I want to try, and, I'm gonna, and I, I can only promise I'm going to try, so by all means, uh, shoot me at the end if I don't deliver. Um, but I'm going to try to explain, um, the, you know, rationally, with logic, in an evidence-based kind of way, why... Uh, God and faith and Jesus in particular are worthwhile uh, believing in. And over the next couple of weeks, we're going to cover things like hypocrisy, hell, and evil and suffering. So we're going to deal with some of the biggest things. And again, I was just in a conversation this week. Just this week, I was in a conversation with someone in Galway, and we're chatting about faith, and they were saying how, how their children uh, don't really embrace faith, don't really have time for church, don't really have time for God. And this parent, who was very sad by this, was saying like, yeah, because like, when it comes to things like science and hell, and hypocrisy, and evil and suffering, they feel like they can't embrace the Christian message or the Christ of Christianity because of their view on those things. And I was like, man, how sad, because I bet you if I talk to them, they have a, only a one-sided view of many of these issues. So this, this series really is our chance to speak and hopefully raise some thoughts around these incredible issues. Most of what I'm going to share with you uh, it comes from a book called The Problem of God. Just skip ahead there for me, Mohan. Uh, written by a guy called Pastor Mark Clark. And uh, it'll appear here. If you want to take a photo of it, you can. And uh, just a photo of the book, please. And, uh, and he's a good friend of mine. He planted a great church in Vancouver called uh, Village Church. And just recently he... Uh, Eric, please, a photo of the book. I think it's like the fourth slide. I'm jumping around here. And he, he, uh, he just recently moved to... Uh, it's not there. Never mind. My, fa my fault. It's called The Problem of God by Mark Clark. And uh, he wrote the book, and he's now a pastor in Bayside Church in Sacramento. Great guy, known personally, a really, really good guy. He actually wanted to become a college professor and then felt like, you know what, maybe God's called me to be a pastor. That's a jump. Uh, and so planted a church, great church, but also tried to, you know, continue his journey of writing academically to defend uh, the faith. So a lot of what I'm, I'm, I'm dealing with comes from that book. Now, the reason why we call it The Problem of God... It's not because, simply put, in the world sense, 
it's a, God's a problem. I mean, God's an inconvenience. I mean, isn't it so much easier to live in 21st century Ireland and not talk about faith? Isn't it so much easier to, to go to school and college and be in relationships and hang out and go to the pub or whatever you do? And not, like, every time you talk about God or faith, everything gets really weird. It's like, man, it seems like on a superficial level that life would be easier if faith didn't exist. That is, of course, true at a superficial level. But as marriages break down and mental health deteriorates and sickness gets in your body and depression sets in and big questions about world and politics and freedom and all these things, all of a sudden there's a deep yearning for truth. And I think right now our world is hungry for truth. So when we talk about problem, we mean it in the... Oh, there's the book. Thank you. Great. Good job. When we talk about the, the, the word problem, what we actually mean is, is the word problem is defined as being a question raised for inquiry, clarification, a question raised to find a solution, a question, an intricate or unsettled question that, that is designed to, to spark conversation. So when we say the problem of God, that's what we mean. We're inquiring. We're looking for clarity. We understand it's complex. We understand there's intricacies, but still we're trying to have this conversation about God. Because here's the thing, there's a resurgence happening in our world right now, I don't know if you know this, and there's a resurgence happening in this nation. I, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, was sitting in the O2 arena with, I don't know, 10,000 people listening to a Canadian philosopher and author called Jordan B. Peterson, you've probably heard of him. He's gone viral for all sorts of reasons. And I sat there and I was just as much gobsmacked for the fact that 10,000 people in Ireland spent 50, 60 plus euro to come and listen to a Canadian philosopher talk for three hours. That's, that, you know, by Irish standards, that's a miracle. But it also showed me that something's happening underneath the surface and there's a hunger there's a hunger for something that goes beyond superficiality. There's a hunger for truth. And of course, Dr. Peterson wrote two books, 12 Rules for Life. And he wrote another book called 12 More Rules for Life. There you go. And uh, it's, a re it's really uh, worthwhile reading. But he said, they said, if we lived in truth, if we spoke the truth, then we could walk with God once again and respect ourselves and others and the world then we might treat others, then we might, sorry, treat ourselves like people we cared for. We might strive to set the world straight. We might orientate it towards heaven where we would, where we would want people we cared for to dwell instead of hell where our resentment and hatred would eternally sentence everyone. Now, whether or not you believe or agree with what he's saying, the point is something's happening in our world when 10,000 people in our country show up to listen to this guy speak. But what he's also hearkening to is this idea there's a hunger right now for truth. There's a hunger for truth. People want to know the truth. And again, if you're someone who's of, uh, of faith and a follower of Jesus, then I want to encourage you over the next couple of weeks as I weave in the truth of who God is and what God says. If you're a skeptic and push against the Christian message, I, all I want you to do is to consider, to be open to the discussion, the thought, the process that maybe the truth is found in the person of Jesus. Jesus said this about himself in John's Gospel, chapter 8 and verse 32. He said, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And this is the same verse that was written in a Bible that was given to me when I didn't want to know anything about God. It was the same verse I wrote in the Bible I gave my dad when he didn't want to know about God. And it's the same verse I wrote in the Bible I gave my brother when he didn't want to know about God. None of us were looking for these things. But nonetheless, when we opened up our minds to, to, to the possibility that maybe truth is found in a person, maybe that person is Jesus, all I can say for me is that truth set me free. That truth has kept me free, and that truth is what I, it's, it's literally like we sang, he is the anchor of my life. So all I'm asking you to do is to consider the possibility. So today in part one, we're going to jump in. Part one, the first message is the problem of science. So when it comes to Christianity, one of the biggest pushbacks we get, and again, if you're a college-age student or maybe you're a secondary uh, school-age student and you're going through these conversations in school, um, this is a real difficult one to navigate because it seems like, it appears like that to believe in science means you cannot believe in Christianity and to believe in Christianity must mean that you married your cousin, you live in a swamp and have no teeth. Right? I mean, surely rational, logical 
qualified, trained, graduated, celebrated intellectual beings. Surely people with an intellect cannot believe in Christianity. And what's so sad is that that's an illusion, as I'm going to show you in a second. That, that's a shadow that does not exist. And that juxtaposition, that, that false dichotomy of two things that seem to uh, oppose one another is, just isn't true in the scientific world and isn't even true biblically. Now, like I said, when I came to faith, I, I was not someone who wanted this, not someone who was open to this. I would have described myself you know, before following Jesus as a skeptic, as, as someone who was a rationalist, as someone who loved evidence-based fact. I would have said things like, and again, I wasn't that old, but still I had this value for science. One of the biggest surprises for me coming to faith was that I didn't have to lose that side of me to become a Christ follower. There are certain things in Scripture, in, in my faith, that require trust, certain things that are beyond explanation. But similarly, there are certain things, a lot of things in the scientific world, in the secular world, that also are, are beyond explanation and require a faith jump. One of them I'm going to talk about at the end, which is evolution. Okay, But the point is this, that no matter which side of the fence we're on, believing in Christ or, or not, there's always going to be certain things that are inexplicable and require some sense of faith or trust or, or projecting our belief. What surprised me, however, was I didn't, ex- I didn't think you could, you could be both, that you could be someone who believed in science and secularism. Number one there, please, Eric, science and secularism. So what happened to me was the problems of Christianity, the problems that I had where Christianity actually led me to the person of Christ. My problems against Christianity didn't lead me away from Christ. My problems of Christianity led me towards Christ. And let me be, be clear again, I didn't want Christ. I mean, even when I, I've shared this before many times, even when I had a moment where I put my trust in Jesus, I didn't really fully want or believe in him. But as I wrestled these things, I felt these things pointed towards another way from Christ. So I want to confront the myth that people who believe in God don't believe in science, and people who believe in science can't believe in God. And we're going to look at four things today. Number one, science and secularism. Number two, atheism versus theism. Number three, science versus the church. And number four, hopefully we get to this, evolution versus faith. Number one, science versus secularism. Okay, so secularism is the belief that there is no God. Secularism is the belief there's no God. Therefore, if there's no God, there's no spirituality. All things in the world are of the world, and all things are purely physical. There is nothing beyond this physical matter to experience. If I can't, if I can't interact w- with it with my basic senses, smell, sight, you know, hearing, taste, and touch, then it's not real. And a lot of people think they believe in secularism. A lot of people in Ireland would describe themselves as being secular. But then they say things that are just crazy, like, I know my mother's gone to a better place when she passes away. And you go, hang on a second. That's not secularism. You just, you just made a statement of faith that you believe in a metaphysical place and that the person that you loved has gone there somehow. So what I want to challenge on is that sometimes we, 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 lay, we attach ourselves to, to, to titles because it seems like it, that's where the, the general bus of society is going, but we don't really know what it means. I think that ultimately the prediction of a secular society has backfired. Like in the 1800s, many of the Enlightenment authors and thinkers predicted a day where, where eventually all the church would lose influence, you know, Christianity would disappear. And although that has happened in some sense in organized religion, that they felt like that with that would come the, this ushering of a secular era, era and that all of us would become a materialist and there'd be no desire, hunger or belief in anything beyond the physical. But the reality is right now in the world, I believe that many people are going deeper in faith in general because they're hungry for answers, hungry for truth, wherever they're finding those answers. But also people are going deeper in faith because of science. And I say that because I'm one of them. I'm one of them. I'm one of the people that was against it, but because of my my, my curious mind and my love for fact and evidence-based research, I became a Christ follower, as crazy as that is to believe. But beyond just my own anecdotal experience, it's happening in the academic world. Did you know that the greatest living philosopher right now worldwide is a guy called Professor Alvin Plantiga? And Alvin Plantiga is actually... A theist. He's a, he's a Christian. He's actually a, a Jesus follower. And Quentin Smith, who's you know, one of the foremost leading atheist and secular uh, philosophers, he wrote this about the fact that, in many ways, philosophy and science is 
pointing people to Jesus. In fact, he's, mo- he's actually complaining. He said, the field of philosophy is being de-secularized across universities in America. One quarter to one third of the philosophy departments now consist of theists, as someone who believes in God, generally Christians. As David Bentley Hart, the philosopher, said, that the greater body of evidence right now in science is not pointing people away from God towards materialism, but actually pointing people towards God because we have everything we need, don't we? I mean, I know we'd like to have more, but like we have access to healthcare, we can travel, we have internet, we have social media. I mean, we, we're the most advanced, most prosperous, most free. We're, we're at the pinnacle of human society for all history. For all time, ever. And even though we complain about some things, and even though there's room to improve, bottom line is when you look at the span of history, human beings have never had it as good as we have it now. So here's the question. Why isn't it enough? And why are we broken? And why do we sit at night alone in bed wondering about life and purpose? I mean, if we're just physical beings, if we're just a product of evolution designed for nothing more and to get our genetic code into the gene pool of the next generation, then why, does, why do we have this hunger for truth, for something beyond what we see? Again, it was Bentley Hart who said, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cogent. Cogent means like convincing or logical position. In fact, I see it as a fundamentally irrational view of reality, which, which can be sustained only by a tragic absence of curiosity or a reverentially resolute will to believe the absurd. The case for belief in God is inductively so much stronger than the case for unbelief that true philosophical atheism must be regarded as a superstition. His words, not mine. What's he saying? He's saying that many people, not all of course, but many people in the, in the scientific world are coming to realize that this, are, this case, that it's, that it's science versus Christianity, it doesn't exist anymore. So much of what science says is compatible with what Christianity says, and so much of how Christianity explains the beginnings and origins of the world actually dovetails quite nicely with, with, with much of what science has produced. And even though atheistic types, and maybe you're one of them, would say, no, I have no faith, and I'm a materialist, and I'm a secularist, and so on and so forth, what this academic is saying is that because you have no proof for your atheism your belief is as superstitious as an atheist as it is as a christian and to continue this belief that somehow church and science and christ and science are are working against each other he says is, is not convincing and not even rational and again this is where my story intersects because this is, this is exactly what happened to me. And I think it's important for us to realize that many people that we're talking to in the world, they, they might describe themselves as secularists, but really there's a hunger and a belief for something more. And that when we find ourselves in college, on the street, in school, around the coffee table, having really, really fruitful, and again, I'm not, I'm not advocating arguments, okay? I don't think we should, we should argue with people in the fighting sense. I think a rational, like a rational argument, a conversation is a good thing. It's a healthy thing. But I don't think we should try to convince people or push people into faith. But we, but we who are Christ followers need to understand that you know, we've, we've been led down this rabbit hole to believe that to be a Christian means you don't believe in science. And that's not true. It's simply not true. The second thing then is atheism versus theism. And because, like Bentley Hart said, that to be an atheist basically is as superstitious as it is to be a Christian, then we have to understand that People who doubt God, doubt faith, doubt Jesus, what they need to realize, maybe you're one of them in the room right now or watching online, that doubt is also a position of belief. Because every one of us has a worldview. Every one of us has a general paradigmatic way that we view the world. We have just a sh- our, mind, our mind and our perspective and how we filter things has been shaped by our upbringing, has been shaped by our culture, has been shaped massively by media, mass media, social media, by what we hear in songs, what artists say. So many of us, we form our beliefs about important things like life, value, marriage, and the world, not by what we read or research, but by what our favorite pop star says. And their lives are usually a disaster. I mean, we take our worldview and relationships from people who can't keep a relationship. 
We, we, we're trying to navigate life and trying to be like people who go through multiple divorces, who don't talk to their kids, who are inwardly depressed, and even some of my childhood pop uh, uh, you know, icons who ended up taking their lives. I'm not saying we shouldn't listen to music or appreciate their genius. I'm just saying we shouldn't take advice very often about very important things like life and faith and family from people who don't model, model it themselves. We need to be thinking, switched on, careful. And the point is, every single one of us, even, skept- even the skeptics among us, we have a worldview. And it was Professor Timothy Keller who said, doubts are simply a set of alternative beliefs. So even in your doubting, that's a belief system. If you don't believe something, that you're entitled to not believe. But in your doubt is a belief. You're believing something's not true. If you told me you won the gold medal for sprinting, I said just Matthew, who was hosting her on. Matthew comes home and says, guess what, guys? I be- where's, where's the next Olympics? Where are they happening? Anyone know? Next Olympics, where are they? Somewhere in the world. We'll just pick some random. They're going to be in, I don't know, France. That's the Rugby World Cup. It's, I, I've got one track. Okay, so let's just say the Olympics happened in France. Matthew comes back and says, I won the Olympic gold medal for sprinting. I beat Usain Bolt and all those other fellas with my eyes closed. I'd look at Matthew and say, I've seen you run, Matthew. It's an ugly thing. Like certain people should not run. And you're one of them because not only do you look broke when you run, but you break people as you run. So I doubt, based on the evidence of what I see, that you won the Olympic gold medal. The point is that even though he may, he may claim to believe something or something's happened, and I may claim to doubt that, I need evidence to support that doubt. If he comes home with an Olympic gold medal, and I suppose some right certificate, you've won a gold medal, I got to look at the evidence and go, oh man, like, I'm wrong. Like, did everybody else die or something? Like, did lightning strike and you're, like, how did you win this thing? Like, even if I'm persistent in my doubt, doubt is still uh, a belief system. It's still a faith position. And here's the thing we need to be careful, especially if you're a skeptic, is that all of us have blind spots. Even in the church, we have blind spots. We all have personal, emotional, philosophical blind spots. And the point is, not that you shouldn't have them because it's part of being human, but that we need to be careful not to be blind to our blindness. And what saddens me is that what I, what I see happening in our culture, being at the O2 a few weeks ago, is that many people are hungry. Many people are searching for truth and for answers and for a message that they can wrap their arms around a, a belief system, a vision for the future that will help guide them out of this chaos. But because of the abuse, and there's been abuse and scandals and misuse of authority by people called church or Christians, whatever, many people have just shut off their brain to even consider that maybe the Christ of the Christian message is worth following. And some of us, we've staked our entire lives and the direction of our lives, what we think is on fact and secularism and science, but actually is just an alternative, a different set of beliefs. And again, I'm not saying you're not entitled to them. You are. I just want you to be aware that's what you're doing. It's like recently I heard a story of this nurse who was hired by a hospital. And when she was going through the interview um, with these doctors, uh, basically you know, going through the application form, she'd written down, I'm a Christ follower. And they were like, oh, you're a Christ follower. Does that mean? Well, I follow Jesus, person of faith. And of course, that's not a very popular position in the world. So they were like, well, look, whatever you do in your own time is your own business. But you cannot bring your faith into the workplace. You've got to be professional. And she's like, well, what do you guys believe? Well, we're, we're atheists. I mean, we don't really believe in God and da-da-da-da. But you know, you can work here and be, be, be welcome. Just don't bring your faith into work. Well, a couple of months go by and this person is dying and doctors take a decision to turn off the machine and let the person pass away. And as the person's passing away and as their heart stops beating and so on, and, you know, they die, when the doctor says, well, at least he's at peace now. And the doctor says, yes, he's gone to a better place. And then everyone says, well, at least there's no suffering. To which the Christian nurse asks the question, well, hang on, what are, you, what are you basing it on? That's a faith position. The fact that you believe this person is now dead and gone somewhere else, that is you bringing your faith into the workplace. That, that's not logical or rational or material or secularist. That's a, that's a metaphysical statement of faith and the belief of something beyond what is physical. And just because you can't label it a certain thing like Christianity doesn't mean that it should be allowed to be spread and, 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 and talked about and convinced any less than the Christian message. 
See, most people around us don't know this, but they have a faith. They have a religion. They believe in things. It's just a question of, are the things they believe in truth are, are the results of popular opinion? You see, there's a difference between, uh, be, a difference between being unintentionally blind and intentionally blind. We all can be blind. But if we continue to turn a blind eye and ignore fact and ignore truth and ignore evidence, well, then we're choosing to be intentionally blind. And that's not good. It's not helpful for the world. A lot of what's happening right now politically and, in, and causing division in the world is a lot of people are being intentionally blind to other people. And that's not helpful for anybody. You can be unintentionally blind, which is where it's like, hey, I never thought about that. I never considered that. Thank you for bringing that point uh, up in this conversation because now I can go away and I can think and I can meditate and I can form my own opinion. But this intentional blindness has been happening and is happening in the academic world for quite some time. It was Richard Lewinton, who is a Harvard biologist, who said this, speaking of kind of the atheistic position against God. He said, we have a prior commitment to materialism. Now, hang on, pause, time out. I thought science was the objective, rational study of fact, and then we prove, and then we prove or disprove a thing, and then we believe it, right? Science is not, not coming to a, a, a situation, a scenario. It's not looking at evidence with a prior commitment. In fact, isn't that what science, or people who say they're on the science, isn't that what they blame the church for? Oh, you Christians, you're not open-minded. You're not open to the facts. You come with a prior commitment that means you can't even be open-minded or objective to the science. Well, this Harvard biologist on record says, we, that is secular, atheistic scientists, we have a prior commitment to materialism. We've already made our mind up before we see the evidence that we're not going to believe it. Because our faith is in the material. It is not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by an a priori adherence to material causes, for we cannot allow a divine foot in the door. That is shocking. That is basically someone admitting that their science is not based on fact, but on philosophy. That we're allowing our, our philosophy, we're allowing our biases to guide how we interpret information so that the information we're interpreting suits the worldview that we believe in. Now, all I'm saying to you is, is if you believe that, know where, where it's coming from. People say, oh, the Bible was written by men, and da da da, da and we're going to do a whole message on the historicity of Scripture. But so is yours. Because the worldview they believe in, they just admit that they don't believe in anything else because they can't afford, because of their system, to allow any possibility of God being real. But here we are today in church, and we're looking for facts, looking at science, looking for reasonable evidence to prove or disprove what we believe in. My question to you today is, is what blindness are you blind to? What is your blind spot? What blindness are you blind to? Because we all have those blindness. And, and the problem with this is, this isn't just reversing your car. This is the direction of your life. This is the legacy you leave your kids. This is you on your deathbed, breathing your last, last breaths. It's, these are big things. And again, I'm not going to try to make you believe one thing. I'm just saying, think about what are your blind spots. There's a funny story I heard years ago, and I often love quoting this, about this mother and daughter who are making the Christmas turkey. I know it's a bit early, but hey, never too early for Christmas, right? And, uh, and so they're making the Christmas turkey, and the daughter's watching intently as mommy's making the turkey, and all of a sudden the mother lops the two turkey legs off the turkey and throws them away. Puts turkey in the pan, seasons, and puts it in the oven. And the daughter's like, but ma'am, why did you take the turkey legs off the turkey? And she says, well, that's just the way we do it. But like, why? That's just the way we do it, but I want to know God bless the child. I want to know why. So, well, I actually don't know why. It's the way my mother taught me. So they phone up the mother, the granny, and say, I've got a question for you. You know, when you make the turkey, you lop off the legs. Yeah, why? I don't know. Well, this is our tradition. Yes, but why? Because it's the way we've all done it. Why? Because that's the way my mother taught me. So now they're all curious, the three of them, they go, right, let's go over to great-grandma's house and have a conversation. In the car to go, across the road. Boom, da-da-da, great-granny. We have a question for you. Sure, what's the question? You know the way we make the turkey, we lop with the legs? Yeah, sure. Why do we do that? Oh, dearie, let me tell you. 
Because in my day and age, we didn't have a pan big enough for the turkey. I mean, four generations of people missed out on turkey ties because no one thought to, you know, scrutinize, look for an evidence-based reason, explanation for why we cut the legs of a turkey. That is intentional blindness, and people lose out when we're intentionally blind. So let me tell you something. This idea that, that science and, and, uh, is against Christianity or atheism somehow is more valid or more rational logical is not true. It is as much a faith position as believing in Jesus Christ. Thirdly, science versus the church. So specifically not Christianity, but the church. Because the church has had a very dark and colorful history. And I want to say this up front, and I will talk about this in the evil and suffering message. We've got to be careful when we define terms what we mean by church. Because there has been, historically, a religious institution, or institutions, plural, that were called church, and had crosses, and did services, and even worshipped Jesus, but weren't Christians. That's a whole, and I will define that in that message on uh, evil and suffering. However, let's just go at church in general. There's, there's this worldview, again, from this secularist, atheistic point of view, that the church has always been against science. The church has tried to hinder you know, science and its growth. The church has tried to snuff out the little you know, beautiful light of knowledge and reason. The church is, is against science. And the point is, that historically speaking, that is not true. In fact, historically, the church, watch this, has been the greatest friend of science. Historically speaking, the church has been the greatest friend of science. And then we hear names, quotes, I'll mention some in a second, that they were persecuted. They may have been scientists, but here's you don't know. A lot of times the people that allowed them to do science, even funded them, was the church. And if they were persecuted, it wasn't persecuted because of their science. It was, they were persecuted or, or they were charged or whatever term I want to use because of their theology. Not their philosophy. Their theology. It's a conversation the other day. But the point is, historically speaking, the church has been a friend of science. The idea that faith and science are against each other is no longer taken seriously in the academic world. It's just not. In, in, in the vast majority of academic stuff you read, the idea that somehow science and church are against each other, it's just not true. Many of the greatest thinkers, writers, philosophers, and scientists in the world right now are Christians and go to a church. How are they against science if they work as scientists and go to church? In fact, going a step further, you could even argue historically that it was the church that birthed modern science. It was the church that birthed Think about it. Animism is the worship of things, right? And if you're an animist, you can't really do science because to do science means you've got to cut up rocks and, and, and basically break God. So animism is not really conducive for science. If you're a Buddhist, well then living things are God. You can't really butcher a cow and study its anatomy if you're a Buddhist. And what about polytheism? This idea that, you know, God is all over the place and like you know you th- so you say well there's a, there's a tornado happening right now a hurricane florida like what's the rational scientific explanation well a polytheist would say well poseidon's angry have you not watched thor he's stirring up the waters that's the rational explanation don't go studying it because poseidon will be even anger like these other worldviews aren't conducive for for science and, and and other major religions like islam and judaism they're more focused on a technical word jewish jurisprudence which is the study of the law than science the point is that when we subject when when deity is in things it's very hard to encourage or allow objective study but christianity and because of what's taught to us in the bible shows us that god created the world he made it good and he gave it to us. And in our study of creation, in our telescopes and microscopes, we find the fingerprint of God. And that isn't just an off-the-cuff statement. It was Kenneth, Kenneth Richard, in his article, Variables, that made this argument. He said, when it comes to the idea that somehow the church and science are against each other, or even the Bible, it's nonsense. For example, it lists 10 ways in which the church and science are in perfect unity and accord. Number one, the church believes that the physical universe is a distinct objective reality. Science has proved that tick. The church believes that the laws of nature exhibit order, patterns and regularity tick science do that too and proven it number three the laws of nature are uniform throughout the physical universe tick the church believes that too 
The physical universe is intelligible, huge point. Again, if I could do a whole piece on this, I would. This is really what separates Christianity, that you can understand God has given us space and even maybe invites us to understand how he created the world. Where many other religions say, no, we should not go into those areas because the divine Christianity invites us in. Take number five, the world is good and valuable. I'm worthy of careful study. Tick. Number six, the world itself is not divine and therefore not a proper object of worship, but of rational study. Massive tick. Number seven, human beings possess the ability to, to discover the universe's intelligibility. Tick. Number, number eight, the free agency of the creator makes the empirical method necessary meaning we can we can categorize and put in hierarchical structures and define and quantify what has been created because the way god created and gave order to the world allows that to be true again science completely agrees number nine god encourages even propels science through his imperative to humans to take dominion over nature and number 10 the intellectual virtues essential to carrying out scientific enterprise are part of god's moral law meaning when we study scripture we're encouraged to understand the why and the how behind the what we're not discouraged as we're led to believe oh the church doesn't want us understanding things because then we'll get you know smart and we'll outsmart them that may have happened as an abuse of religious institutions but god's word and god himself encourages us to come find him in creation. Not only that, but I don't know if you know this, but universities, the very things that right now are challenging people and shaking people's faith philosophically and theologically, universities were invented, wait for it, by the church. They were created to bring unity in diversity. They were funded and built by the church. I don't just mean Christian universities. I mean Harvard. I mean Yale. I mean Oxford and even Trinity College in Dublin, everyone, was founded on the belief that God created the world for good and he gave us intellect and faculties and he encourages us to come find him in creation. And again, this idea that historically the church is against uh, science is crazy because guys like Augustine and Aquinas, Wycliffe, Copernicus, even Francis Bacon, who is no relative of Kevin Bacon and didn't invent bacon, were encouraged and sometimes funded by the church. Does anyone know what Frank and ba- Francis Bacon's biggest contribution to science was? I'll tell you what it was. He invented the scientific method. He came up with the framework for all science. The thing you learn in second year science about how we approach a thing, the whole hypothesis and forming and fact and evidence and theory, he came up with all that. And he was not an enemy of the church He was a friend of the church. So, so much of what we have in science right now, historically speaking, has been encouraged in part or largely by the church. Now, of course, there's been scandals and abuses and and we have to admit that. But at the same time, we have to realize that a lot of the, 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 the worldview that we have secularly about how these two things are opposed comes from a group of 18th century, 19th century philosophers who didn't like the church and whose intellect and belief led them away from questions of faith and basically said factually that basically God is dead, as you know Nietzsche said. But the truth is, science is not opposed to faith and science and the church are not enemies. They historically have been friends and they can and are today. So, that leads to our fourth and final one, evolution versus faith, the big one. So, many people say, I can't embrace the Christian message because of because of, of creation, of how the Christian's worldview of how the world uh, began. And again, this could literally be a talk in of itself. Maybe it should be. Let me just draw a few thoughts to you today as we get ready to close this thing off. When it comes to the rationalization of evolution, you can't just say, I believe in evolution. When I ask people, what do you believe in? They say, I believe in evolution. Well, I, 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 I admire the fact or I appreciate the fact that they put the sentence in the context of belief because evolution still is very largely theoretical, okay? So it takes faith to believe, and that's fine. It's just a belief system. But we have to admit that it's not like proven fact. It's, it's not like I know evolution. It's I believe in it, okay? So I, although I do appreciate that, I have to push back and go, well, 
to believe or disbelieve something, you have to be able to prove or disprove something. And if you don't believe in Christianity, here's a challenge for all you skeptics and even evolutionists, can you disprove it? To which the, the best minds in the academic world who try every single day so, say, no or not yet. So to be able to say I prove one thing, we have to be able to disprove it. And because we can't, here's the point. Evolution, just like secularism, is a faith position. It's not science. It's faith. It uses science just like Christians use science to, to prove what they believe. Both are faith positions. First cause hasn't been proven. The complexity of the human eye has not been explained. There's no fossil record that can prove it ultimately. And there's no transitional forms found anywhere, anytime, full stop. So we can't embrace this worldview as if it's true because it masquerades in popular culture like truth. It is a faith position. And that's okay. You're entitled. to. I'm not saying you can't have it. I'm saying, hey, have it, but know what it is. And understand that from your own lips come the truth of what you believe. I believe in evolution. It was Stephen Jay Gould, the most celebrated evolutionary paleontologist in the last generation and ardent atheist who said this, and I quote, The extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the, watch this, trade secret of paleontology. Science has trade secrets? So first of all, you tell me that scientists who are supposed to come at issues with, with, with an objective rationality have a pr prior commitment to materialism, and now you're telling me the greatest evolutionary mind in the last century admits that there's a trade secret amongst intellects in the paleontology world? And that is, back to the quote, that the evolutionary tree that adorns our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. Watch this. This is, this is literally mind-blowing. His quote, not mine. The rest is inference. The rest is inference. So the fact that we think evolution is scientifically true, we have little data, and everything else that your kids are taught, that you believe, that you literally have, have you know, anchored your life on, is inference. Not evidence, not science, but it was, what's inference? It's conjecture. What's conjecture? It's opinion. Your worldview is based on the opinions of people you don't even know, but we call them scientists, so they must know. Be careful. Don't be willfully blind to the things you're blind to. Use the brain that God has given you, or however you believe your brain came to be, and use it scientifically, rationally. Because I'm not afraid to bring Christianity to the table and have a conversation rationally. I think my faith is robust enough to stand up to all the questions of science, evolution, secularism, and atheism. I'm not, I don't shy back. I'm not ashamed of my faith in Jesus. I haven't switched my brain off to be able to follow him. You see, because faith has no evolutionary benefit, it negates the reason the gates the need, the need for reasons up because we can't trust our own mind. Charles Darwin, who you all know, is the great father of evolution. He said this in a book called Darwin's Doubt. This was his like journal, and in Darwin's Doubt, he kind of admitted this to himself. He said, "Within me, the horrid the horrid doubt always arises, whether the conviction of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, his opinion, not mine, are of any value, are at all trustworthy." Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? What's he saying? He's saying that it's beginning to dawn on me that every, because there's no, there's no room for faith in God in the evolutionary worldview, therefore everything we believe rationally and logically comes about as the result of this developing of lower form minds to higher form minds. And if we don't trust the convictions of lower form beings, you wouldn't trust your kids with a monkey, right? So you're thinking, well, my kid's kind of like a monkey. No, you wouldn't just hand over your two-year-old daughter to a monkey because you know that there's, there's, there's a, they're an animal. You can't do that. So if that's where you believe you come from, how can you trust your own mind? How can you trust its ability to know, to prove or disprove truth? Because it comes from, as you believe, as Darren said, a monkey's mind. This idea that evolution and Christianity 
our evolution disproves Christianity. It's not true. You know, when you look at observational science versus origin science, this is a big part of the conversation. You know, a lot of the science of the 1800s and 19th century were observations. We looked at things and it seems like this came from that, and so we study it and try to prove it. But because of technology, because of what's happening with, with, with technology and microscopes and all the different things we have, a huge focus has gone, you know, to origin and, and science. And, and again, we get this because, you know, we know the difference as human beings between nature and higher forms. For example, a couple weeks ago, I brought some of my, my friends to Glendalough. You all know Glendalough? It's a beautiful place, kind of Wicklow. When you look at the lake in Glendalough, you go, wow, how beautiful nature is. Right? You walk back towards the car park about a kilometer and you go see the round tower and you see the monastery and you don't go, oh, look at that, nature. Nature didn't make the church. Like, nature didn't cause a tornado to come into Ireland and cause all these rocks to be stuck in the ground and all fall in a perfectly cylindrical order with windows and doors and a nice little roof. Man. Nature. Man. Nature, man. Nature, higher form. In the same way as scientists now, because of technology, are able to study higher forms of science, all sorts of incredible discoveries have been made. Francis Collins, you may know him, he was the, the, the professor and scientist who was tasked, watch this, with mapping the human genome. Wasn't a Christian? was an agnostic, went about his science and in mapping the human genome came to some great discoveries and he wrote a book. Do you know what Francis Collins' book is called? The Language of God. As he studied the very fabric of our DNA, he said there must be a God. Evidence shows me that this, this, this isn't just nature. There's design. There's intelligence. There's intentionality. This isn't just random things sparking and happening to create people. Someone has had a finger in this thing. Edwin Hubble, the Big Bang Theory, whether it's biology through the microscope or cosmology through the telescope, what we see are increasing uh, stories of evidence showing it. That, and again, I'm not saying that they prove God or disprove God. I'm just saying they're, they're just simply saying that how Scripture shows us the world came to be are agreeing with how science is discovering things. It was Robert Jastow, celebrated astronomy, astronomer and agnostic, who said, now we, now we now see how the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. As a chain of events leading to humankind commenced suddenly and sharply at a definite moment in time, in a flash of light and energy, the scientist's pursuit of the past ends in an exceedingly strange development. And here it is. Unexpected to all except theologians, that there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work, is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Again, his words, not mine. Celebrate astronomer and agnostic. Final few thoughts. What does it all mean? It means this. It means if you choose to continue in your disbelief of God. That's okay, you're entitled to that. And by all means, don't feel that we're trying to force you to end them. I just want you to know where your belief comes from, just like I know where my belief comes from. And when it comes to the conversation of whose belief is better or whose belief, belief is more valid or, so, or whatever, we have to be careful to th- not to settle for sound bites from social media and poorly written textbooks in college and a very limited one-sided argument that never gets challenged because it's just convenient for everyone in our culture to believe the same thing. That's not science. That's popularism. True science is that we scrutinize. We look for evidence. We, we, we debate. We apply Francis Bacon's method. And we try our best to see what is, what is the actual evidence saying. And in fact, science has a word for this. It's called the NOMA principle. NOMA stands for non-overlapping magisterial authorities. What it's saying basically is that, that physical science, physics, can't prove, can't prove or disprove metaphysics. There's this, there's this general belief in the world right now amongst the scientific community that there is a metaphysical reality to the world. And they don't understand it and they can't prove or disprove. But ultimately what they're saying is, is because it exists and because it aligns strangely, as Jastow said, with what God says in Scripture... They can't disprove God. So if you're a non-Christian and you're an atheist, here's what I'm saying to you. Consider this. Maybe Jesus is truth. That's all I'm asking. 
and come with us on this journey. And if you come with us on this journey, at the end, still believe what you believe. Well done. At least we've done something scientific. If you're a believer, understand, science cannot disprove God's existence. Science has its limits, and science cannot disprove God's existence. It's Stephen Jay Gould, one more time, the Harvard professor of zoology said, nature just is. In all our complexity and diversity, in all our sublime indifference to our desires, therefore we cannot use nature for our moral instruction or for answering any question within the magisterium of religion. To say it to my colleagues, and for the umpteenth million times, science cannot, by its legitimate methods, adjudicate the issue of God's superintendence or nature. We neither affirm nor deny it. We simply cannot comment on it as scientists. And Alison McGrath, one more time, Oxford professor said this. The idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian or scientist. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism, he says, survives only at a popular, it's a Harvard professor, at a popular level. Namely, the myth, as he calls it, the myth that an atheistic fact-based science is permanently at war with faith-based religion. You don't have to give up your brain to be a Christian. You don't have to be stupid. Our faith is robust. Our faith stands up against scrutiny. Our faith aligns in many ways with all the tenets of what science teaches. Our faith is evident, whether it's in the microscope or a telescope. You can be encouraged today that we have is a great faith. And if you're not someone of faith, all I'm asking you to do is just consider just consider, just consider, consider, consider. Paul said this in Romans, last verse we're going to pray. He said, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities that, are na- that are, can't be seen by the naked eye, but can be seen through a telescope and a microscope. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, been understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What's Paul saying? Paul's saying that we look at nature, where it's the ground, the rocks, the stars, our own genome, how we're made, we see the fingerprint of God. I want to encourage you if you're a Christ follower. Don't press eject on your faith because it's hard. Don't, don't allow this incredibly rich and persevering faith that's been handed down to us, that's, that's changing lives still today, to be tossed aside because you sat in a second year biology class in UCD. Study. Research. Take, look at the notes. Read, read, the, read the material these men and women have written. Come to your own conclusion, but don't give... Your faith is strong. It is strong. And my conviction, my bias is this. All science does is figures out how God did what God has already done. Again, you may not agree with that. If you're a skeptic, that's okay. That's my belief. And we shouldn't be intimidated by that.